Hello, everyone. This is Gary Bean welcoming you to the LL Research Law of One podcast, episode number 104. LL Research is a nonprofit dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. You can find virtually all of its material available for free at llresearch.org and our forums at discourse.bringforth.org. I'm joined today by Austin Bridges and Austin Bridges. Typically, Jim would be joining us, but um, he has some commitments today and it's been some time. So Austin and I carved out some bandwidth to make it happen today. In this podcast, we discuss spiritual topics through the lens of the law of one and our own personal experiences. We hope to only offer a resource and provide discussion, not to present ourselves as authorities with the final word on these subjects. Please exercise your utmost discernment while you listen to us ramble on. Uh, And if you have a question for the podcast, we'd love to uh, respond to it. Please email us at contact at llresearch.org or go to llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, uh, I'm Gary, and this is LL Research's Law of One podcast. Uh, Austin, are you on the line? I am here and ready to go. All right, cool. Well, a few uh, housekeeping details before we get underway with the topic of our podcast, which is meditation. Uh, The first of which is that um, we've received emails and feedback in person from people who enjoy the podcast. And this is not to be modest when I say that it is surprising to us. (laughs) Uh, It's just really to report on our experience. It's not only is surprising, but it's motivating to us. So thank you so much to everybody who has given feedback. It has encouraged us to get back to this episode today. Uh, Right now, you're listening to just Austin and me, but our team has grown at LL Research, and we have a unique array, unique and diverse array of talent and intelligence and awareness. Um, And soon here, we want to introduce you to the rest of the team. Um, And in LL Research world, there are a couple things we'd like to tell you about. One is that uh, it is presently 2023. Last year, we resumed holding events Uh, for the first time since before the pandemic. And uh, it was hugely, hugely uplifting to us and heart restorative. We really did not realize how much we needed it and missed it and and what uh, a drought we were, so to speak. And um, the experience of the participants mirrored our own state of uh, gratitude and joy. So we wanted to let you know that if you're listening, uh, LL Research is holding events again, and we intend on holding three this year, two stateside, one in Europe. So stay tuned. And in other uh, big news for us, the new website, which launched in September 2021, is undergoing an evolutionary step forward. We will be launching foreign language versions of the website. Presently, if you go to the library site, click on the language icon in the upper right, you'll see a menu of like 22 different languages with 23 on the way. And if you click on any one of those, you arrive at a welcome page that is just a single page that lists everything available in that language, whether it's books or or transcripts. 
The uh, what we're working on now, uh, many, many thanks to Daniel and the support of translators is a foreign language version of each site so that, for instance, say, if you clicked on uh, French, you would go to a French version of the website. It won't be the, the entire site in French, but um, some of the main pieces from the homepage to the library page to the book page to policy uh, documents and two really, really exciting features, including a dedicated raw contact page that mirrors the English version you know, with the layout of the 106 sessions and uh, resources related to the raw contact and a search engine specific to that language. So it's really, really exciting to be able to support readers around the world uh, using these means. And then finally, a really heartfelt and important disclaimer. And that's that um, we are not pros on meditation. There are many other sources, whether it's books, podcasts, uh, documentaries, movies, and so forth, that you can go to and really learn about um, technique techniques for meditation, the science studies, uh, lifetime practitioners who are you know much more skilled than uh, we are. You, you won't be getting cutting edge science or new studies or methods per se on this podcast, unless maybe Austin has something up his sleeve. Um, but you will be hearing from two of the monkeys behind uh, LL Research, this organization that that channels information um, in case you're interested in our opinion. So please just use this as a springboard. Um, but for what it's worth, Austin and I will be uh, exploring what meditation is, what its benefits are, uh, if, what its limitations uh, may be, what obstacles there are to meditations, if we have any recommendations, and then finally, our own personal experiences with meditation, which will include for me, a 10 day uh, Buddhist silent meditation retreat I underwent last year that was really life changing. So our, our housekeeping comes to an end. Um, Austin, before we dive into our our topic of choice here. Do you have anything that you'd like to share? Uh, just in addition to the housekeeping, um, if you are interested in joining us for an event, um, yeah, I know it's hard for a lot of people to make it, but we would love to see you if you are able. You can get first notice of when registration opens by subscribing to our gatherings newsletter, which you can find on our library site, lrresearch.org, under the library section. You go to library of newsletters and you'll find the gatherings newsletter and a sign-up form there, and you'll be the first to know about when registration opens. And so that's the best way to get notified if by doing that. But otherwise, uh, no more thoughts. I'm ready to talk about meditation. What What is meditation? I've never heard of this thing. It's something that is impossible to do, <laughs> and I would not recommend anybody try it unless they <laughs> would like an experience and frustration. Honestly, it sounds boring. I don't, I don't even know why we're talking about it. It is that too, and that's probably why uh, it will appeal to very few Americans and, and uh, people in the West too that need <laughs> their dose of stimulation every, mm -hmm. every two seconds. A quick note about events. We also... Uh, intend on hosting online events too. Um, so like Austin said, if you can't make it to an in-person, stay tuned because we hope to have a couple of those this year. But back to meditation. Uh, Austin, you want to keep running with it? What is meditation? That is our first question. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's a really hard question. You had sent that in part of the outline for the podcast. And I was trying to think of like, how do you even answer that question, especially in the context of the Confederation's discussions about meditation, because they tend to avoid being specific about meditation. And, <laughs> you know, Ra declined Don's questions a few times about if there's a best way to meditate or uh, if there's a way of meditation they would recommend. Uh, Ra basically just said, no, <laughs> just meditate. That's all we're going to give you, basically. Um, they did go into a little bit more detail about like what's involved in meditation and the benefits of different types of meditation, but the Confederation has perpetually avoided really pinning down what meditation is. So I think the best way to conceive of it, or at least how I conceive of it, is in really broad, simple terms, and that is basically just a conscious effort to still the mind and the body and discover a place of serenity and stillness and mindfulness within oneself. And uh, there are many different ways of achieving that, many different approaches to doing that. But I think one of the most common, you know, words that the Confederation has used in talking about meditation is silence. And I think that mm -hmm. is probably the key to what the most basic fundamental aspect of meditation is, is seeking a type of silence within one's own mind, within one's own being, not even just mind. I think in meditation, you can explore your entire being, your, uh, your heart and your body itself too, and finding a certain stillness within that exploration. So that is my basic broadest uh, definition of what meditation is. Yeah, thank you. I agree with everything uh, that you just shared and resonate with it. And it reminded me that uh, Ramana Maharshi, who is a non-dual mystic speaking from, per my perspective, from a point of sort of absolute consciousness, indicated that our beings are essentially always in meditation. It's just that in this incarnate state, entranced as we are with space-time and the world of thought and form and separation, we need to do this activity we call meditation in order to consciously re-experience that which is obscured by this veil or screen of thought. And that's what you referred to, Austin, silence. Yeah, uh, I see meditation as a means. I mean, it is almost, it becomes a way of life. It's almost an end in and of itself, but really it's it's a means to something more. It's a, it's a practice that one undertakes. It's a discipline. And uh, we'll get into the benefits as we understand it, uh, real shortly here. But in terms of what it's a means for, there are quite a number of things you could say, uh, uh, some of which Austin already covered. And I would add that it's a means of training, attention, and awareness, of developing the faculties of will and faith, of liberation, of self-realization, and of listening to the creator. And if, I, if there are four words that I'm most associate with meditation as being fundamental to what meditation is and worthy of contemplation in and of himself, they would include focus, silence, stillness, and witnessing. 
so, you know, that's I that, that completes it for me. Um, so unless you have anything more, Austin, we'll dive into the benefits, so-called. Yeah, yeah, I think moving on to benefits and just generally like what it does, why do it and stuff like that. Okay, in your most clickbaity fashion, <laughs> what are the top three benefits of meditation? Uh, the top number three is that um, it you look really cool if you can manage to get somebody taking a picture of you meditating, and it makes really good like profile picture to you know have you sort of with a really serene background, and especially if you do the classic cross-legged pose with like your palms up on your uh, knees. Yeah, um, if you can pull it off on a rock or a, yeah. an outcropping, like over a cliff, mm, bonus points. Yeah. Um, so, you know, talking about, we'll talk about our personal experiences later, but I have to draw upon my personal experience in terms of what the benefits are first. And that is when I first started on my spiritual journey, you know, meditation was clearly like one of the first things that was recommended. My spiritual journeys kind of started with the law of one and the confederation material. So there was that impetus or that injunction, as they've called it, uh, to just meditate. And so it was one of the first spiritual practices, really the first regular spiritual practice I took up. And the benefits that I experienced uh, was, you know, only a complete transformation of my entire life. Um, it helped me to grapple with the emotions and the anxieties and the difficulties I had uh, with life in general. It sort of helped me develop a relationship with the currents that were dragging me along in my life that existed inside of me. And so I think one of the benefits, I think, of meditation, one of the primary benefits, uh, primary and most basic, because the benefits and the function of meditation, I think, go very far, and they can be very uh, specific and very in-depth in terms of how far you go on the spiritual path. But I think the majority of the benefit of meditation is becoming intimately familiar with those currents of emotion, those currents of uh, just your general energies within your own mind and within your own body and forming a relationship of uh, serenity and stillness. And you use the word witnessing with those things so that they are not pulling you constantly and not, knocking you off balance constantly. And so in my experience, it wasn't necessarily that I was getting rid of these emotional currents. I wasn't really getting rid of my anxiety, wasn't getting rid of uh, my um, sadness or my sorrow or my anger. I was developing a way to witness them and to honor them and allow them to exist in a place that didn't just completely disrupt my life and allowed me to consciously figure out how to relate to them and how they related to my life. And so they weren't dictating how they existed in my life and interrupting relationships, interrupting uh, my desires and my goals, like my larger desires and goals, or even just my everyday life. Um, things like uh, anxiety and um just loneliness would keep me awake at night 
And since I started meditating and developed over a long period of time, a very close relationship with those things that existed inside of me and learned to allow them to exist without allowing them to sort of drag me down. Uh, I haven't had any issues sleeping and I haven't had any issues with them really like just throwing me completely off the rails of life. And so that's the biggest benefit to meditation that I can think of, even if somebody is not on a conscious spiritual journey, but especially if one is on a conscious spiritual journey, uh, finding a place of conscious relationship with the currents of one's own life uh, is probably what I would say the biggest one. And there are more, but I pass it back to you. Yeah, I think you just took a dive into um, a portion of what Ra calls the disciplines of the personality. Knowing yourself, accepting yourself, become the creator. There's much packed into what you just shared that pertains to knowing yourself. And in, in that knowledge, coming to accept yourself. And then the transcendence part, you know, realizing that you're not these thoughts, you're not these currents, as you call them, uh, these anxieties or these emotional experiences, but you're something more. You're, there's more of you behind that. And through meditation, you're able to contact that and rest and find some peace. And uh, kudos to you that it's had this very practical benefit of um, reducing anxiety and those things that keep one up at night. <laughs> Because I have, despite my years of meditation, to which I credit some growth, I haven't had quite as similar uh, practical success with it. But the the benefits to meditation, I think, expand to can expand to every quarter of our life because in meditation, one is working with their own consciousness, which is the experience of who you are, the, the experience of every life, everywhere you go, every moment you have, every interaction um, you have. It's uh, yourself is the your primary source of catalyst and experience. It's your interface. And meditation is a way to um, take the gaze from being from its hypnotic sort of entrancement with the outside world and with the interior thoughts and turn that gaze more inward directly into the heart of self, the heart of being. I think it's um, Ra describes that the adept is performing a study of being. And what is beingness? It's not a topic I'm going to explore right now, but meditation is that method of reducing that mental roar and screen of thought to make conscious contact with the being itself, which is greater than thought, which is the container within which thought arises and falls. And maybe towards that end, I'll, or segueing from that, I'll hop onto equanimity. So in Buddhism, 
as many people probably have some passing familiarity with the four noble truths, at least uh, the Buddha in sort of diagnostic fashion says that uh, in the first noble truth that life is, as we translate it in the West, suffering. And the word that the Buddha used was dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, which is a Sanskrit term, which I've read doesn't quite, suffering isn't quite an equivalent to, but one of the best translations I've heard is a sort of dislocation, like a wheel that's um, not centered right on the axle mm. and is wobbling, out of alignment-ness, or a dissatisfaction. Also, right, yeah, I was about to say, I've also heard dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. And I'm 42 years old now, and the more I live my life, the more I realize how utterly true that is. Um, in, in the way that we conventionally relate to the illusion and the mind conventionally works is premised on what connects to the second noble truth, uh, which is the cause of suffering, or the, this dissatisfactoriness. And that is our craving, our attachment, and our aversion. Not recognizing that all things, all things that can be seen or touched or even, even experienced in a non-tangible sense, all things are impermanent. The lifetime itself is impermanent. Every sensation that we experience, every memory, nothing can be held onto yet. And here's a quote that I really like. Yet yeah, we, we, we attempt to relate to the world as if it is that way. And the quote is, we go through life grasping at or clinging to what we think will gratify us and avoiding what we dislike. The second noble truth tells us that this very grasping or clinging or avoidance is the source of dukkha. We are like drowning people who reach for something floating by to save us then discover that what we've latched onto provides only momentary relief or temporary satisfaction. What we desire is never enough and never last. And uh, I see this chronic pattern in myself, looking for satisfaction, for pleasure, for salvation, even something, some piece of uh, Loading debris I can hold on to that's going to give me permanent uh, peace and well-being, and it doesn't work that way. It's a misaligned relationship with with the illusion, and this this constant habit of grasping and uh, attaching to what is pleasurable and then avoiding what is un unpleasurable sets us up to be in a state of suffering and all the byproducts of that, from anxiety and worry and dread and fear and um, frustration and anger and disempowerment and, and so forth as we, we, we aren't in our power. We're like Austin was describing, we're at the mercy of these currents. Uh, we aren't there really. The lights aren't turned on when we have this relationship uh, with the illusion. So in meditation, one is learning to, by this mere act of witnessing what arises and what falls, what, what, what arises and falls away without grasping onto it and without avoiding it, one is learning to disengage this 
habit that generates suffering. Uh, when you know when the something pleasurable comes up, one stands back and just looks at it without participation in in this discipline of meditation. One does this, and likewise, when something very unpleasant comes up. One doesn't recoil or try to repress or try to engage the strategies of logic, which help one to think through the problem or to shield oneself from the problem or so forth. Instead, one faces it at a very raw level and just does that. There's no steps two or three or four, just learning to be with that which is arising and that which is falling away. And that is the cultivation of equanimity as I understand it. And it's something that like, much like exercise, you, you go to the gym, you test your muscles, you lift your weights, but that strength that you build and cultivate in the confines of the gym doesn't end when you walk out the door, you go into the rest of your life feeling more vital, being stronger, presumably physically, uh, through your cardio work, through your, your weightlifting. And Likewise, with meditation, what you do on that mat, if it is that you're sitting in that silence, in the developing of equanimity, uh, permeates to the rest of your life. And as you learn to witness your own mind in the experience of meditation, then so too can you learn to be with your experience in your daily life. You learn to disengage those gears that keep you locked in suffering and dissatisfaction and chasing after something that can't give you true salvation or meaning and, and, and avoiding that which you don't want to want to look at. Um, and in learning to be with what one experiences with equ equanimity, one is creating space for peace as I, as I understand it. And finding wholeness in the moment. I've heard it said that a wandering mind is not a happy mind. And if you reflect on your experience, if you're anything like me, uh, you'll know that in whatever moment you may be in, your mind is often elsewhere on its own um, track. It sort of engage in an illusion of future and past a future and past that exist only in the mind because all that ever really exists is the present. Uh, as Eckhart Tolle says, um, has, or rather as Eckhart Tolle asks one, has anything ever happened outside of the present moment? Anything? And the answer is uh, brain teasing, no. But we're seldom here in the present where life is unfolding. Uh, like I was describing. So meditation teaches you to be present and to be with your experience. And by be with your experience, let me tie this back in kind of in a reiterative fashion and say that we're not attempting to manipulate our experience per se or reconfigure it so we're happy. Instead, we're just showing up and accepting it for what it is. And does that not form a direct line to what the Confederation describes as learning to love and accept one's catalyst on the positive path. But 
Uh, I've gone on a long enough tangent. What's coming up for you, Austin, in terms of benefits? Um, it's making me think of this sort of, I wouldn't say paradox, but these things that seem contradictory and that if we talk about the benefits of meditation, and particularly we both were kind of referencing some practical benefits and how if you develop a meditation practice that will have an influence over your life and your sense of well-being and your sense of peace in your life. And it's very true, like even from a scientific perspective, you know, scientists and people who have a material view of the universe, they tend to not think something is worthy unless it can be measurably proven to do something they consider worthy. And so it is very real that meditation can be measured uh, both subjectively and objectively to have these benefits within our lives. But I find it a bit funny too that um, when I was doing some research to for this podcast and finding quotes from the Confederation about uh, meditation, they were constantly uh, attempting to dissuade people, dissuade seekers from attempting to measure the benefits of meditation. Um, just one example from Hatan from back in 1974, uh, June 21st, they said, Free yourself from the desire to measure your progress in meditation. Free yourself from the fetters of your own systems of measurement, for that which you are desiring is measureless and limitless, my friends. Simply allow yourself to seek and to accept, through meditation, the contact with the creator of us all. That is your duty as a portion of this creation. So as we're talking about these practical benefits and how we can sort of measure the effects of meditation in our lives, I think that uh, the overall purpose, you know, the, that does exist. But then if we look at it from the Confederation's point of view, all of that's probably like uh, icing on the cake and the cake itself is the, you know, tabernacling with the creator within silence and that is what would be like the overriding ultimate quote-unquote benefit of meditation is that it serves the purpose of the most central purpose of spiritual seeking and attempting to understand the creation and the creator and ourselves as the creator and that being found within the silence that we cultivate through meditation and so I just was finding it kind of funny that I personally am attached to all these practical benefits of meditation, particularly because I experienced them firsthand. And I also have a very strong skeptic inside of me that requires that justification, that measurement of like, if you can't measure it and see the effects through some form of measurement within the material world, then there is a part of me that wants to deny the existence of its goodness at all. And so um, trying to maintain both of those viewpoints, this, the practical benefits and then the ultimate spiritual benefit of just being silent with the creator uh, is an interesting dichotomy to me. So one to 10, how would you rate the benefits of meditation? <laughs> I rate them, uh, you know, average 6.5 or so, I'd say. 
I was uh, just thinking about you talking about uh, measuring the benefits uh, right. of meditation. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, you know, there's various, there's a spectrum of meaning and depth, purpose and, and benefit, so-called to meditation, as there is, say, with yoga. You know, there's um, yoga that can increase one's flexibility and reduce stress and help one to be just generally more healthy, you know, which are all uh, worthy in and of themselves. But uh, yoga in the deeper spiritual sense is a, um, a linking to the creator, a union with the creator and a, a method or discipline whereby the incarnate self seeks that fundamental oneness with the creator. And same with meditation. There's... Uh, like those out, out, more outward or visible practical benefits like we were talking about, including you know, reducing blood pressure, heart rate, uh, breathing, and stress, um, which is particularly worthy in and of itself because uh, stress underlies so many of the illnesses that uh, afflict us. But at its deepest level, I'm glad you highlighted that, Austin, is this tabernacling with the creator which I looked up recently and in its verb form means to inhabit or dwell within. So, you know, the self which perceives itself to be separate is dwelling within the holy of holies, the silent abode of the creator. And the goal of Vipassana, so I understand, is to see things as they are. And what is, as it ultimately is, is ineffable, of course. It, it doesn't yield to our conceptualizations or formulations of words, and certainly not of physics. But uh, there are some adjectives that have been applied over the years by those who have seen, um, and including Ra. And there's three adjectives that come to mind when Ra points to ultimate reality. Uh, at least as it can be perceived from the human standpoint, and that includes perfection, wholeness, and completeness. And um, the way life is lived without the cultivation of the witnessing awareness within, which is potently effectuated through meditation, is of the total conviction in the solidity and permanence of a separate self that is relating to an external world that is constantly grasping and craving and avoiding because it has a relationship of separation to everything which is around it. And it is this separate self is inherently. Um, experienced as not complete, not whole, and not perfect. So how do you see this perfection, wholeness, and completeness that Ra describes that is inherent to unity? And, um, you know, it's not by any acquisition of uh, external experience per se, not by any particular gain, not by doing anything in particular, not by becoming perfect by removing all of one's flaws uh, as they may be. 
uh, but by recognizing the alreadiness of perfection, wholeness, and completeness, that the self is, however the self appears to be apparently distorted, whatever its myriad imperfections, whatever our uh, seeming inadequate, incomplete, non-whole, imperfect sense of self underneath, just as it is, is perfect. And meditation, as I understand it, is a powerful mechanism of abiding in that perfection because we disentangle our sense of self from our thoughts, from the separate self. We dehypnotize ourselves. We realize that these thoughts happen within the container of our witnessing awareness, but we are not these thoughts. And in that spaciousness that develops, that is what I understand to be liberation. Freedom from the mind and the, the suffering that it, it generates. And that's a powerful motivator for me, this, this notion of liberation. And, and I say that knowing that even this seeking of liberation itself ultimately comes to an end because the the seeking of enlightenment is that which in the end is what prevents so-called enlightenment because the self is already our true nature is buddha nature our true nature is already uh the creator it's just this camouflage that we grasp onto and take to be ourselves so one gets into those uh, paradoxical waters of will and surrender in there but we'll, we'll move on into uh what the confederation's thoughts may be on meditation unless you have anything more for this section austin um i do just have one more thought that i'd like yeah, to yeah, share only means. because it's something that i have personally found very powerful and it's something that uh, has appealed to that aspect of me that I was talking about that needs a uh, justification that can be measured or some sort of progression in some way. So I say this with the caveat of, you know, the Confederation says this is not what's important about meditation. And I do think it is important to, you know, return to meditation without the expectation of some kind of outcome. I think that's a really important thing yeah. the Confederation highlights a lot. Yeah. But uh, if you're like me and there is a part of you that is really attached to the notion of there being an outcome of meditation and a practical benefit, uh, this thought has really helped me consider meditation, especially when I get frustrated with my meditation practice and I am feeling like there's no progression. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, even a lot of people who have been meditating for a long time still sometimes struggle to maintain a pretty good steady silence for just the 20, 30, 45 minutes that they are sitting still. And I learned about this technique from a book that uh, really resonated with me. It's called um, The Willpower Instinct. And she talked about meditation in this book and how it can help us to cultivate willpower which I relate to something that can be uh, related to spiritual discipline, uh, willpower being, you know, if we have a goal, let's say a long-term goal that we would like to achieve, but we have short-term desires, uh, sort of like the uh, grasping for 
uh, attachments that you were talking about, Gary, that sort of get in the way of the long-term goals, especially for spiritual seekers. This would be, you know, uh, the greater path of service to others. Um, cultivating willpower helps us to act in favor of those more long-term goals uh, without having it derailed by those short-term, you know, desires that we would in the long term want to leave aside. So in meditation, uh, if we are struggling maintaining our focus and uh, we are sitting for a certain amount of time and we find by the end of the whatever, however long we sit for, 30 minutes, that our thoughts have sort of traveled and our focus has uh, wavered, you know, a hundred times within that 30 minutes, it is still a powerful act because the act of just sitting and having a focus and a desire to focus on the one thing, and when your thought wavers somewhere else and you realize it and bring it back to the internal focus, it is akin to like you were talking about, Gary, of uh, growing a muscle and maintaining an ability to bring yourself back to a central focus and bring yourself back to something that you would in the long term prefer to be doing, but are getting distracted from by more short term thoughts and short term desires. And so even if we sit in meditation, and we don't find the silence, like we are hoping to find, just sitting for that certain amount of time and making sure that when we realize our thoughts are traveling, we come back to the center, come back to the silence and come back to focusing on just whatever we chose to focus on, such as our breath, that builds the muscle that then carries into our larger lives of being able to return our focus to our long-term goals and help us to leave aside those short-term distractions that might keep us from those goals. And I found that to be true. And the this book was mostly based on, you know, scientific studies. And so this was a scientifically backed idea that she was proposing in the book. And it's something that has really resonated with me and helped me not get so frustrated when I meditate and feel like I haven't achieved silence at all. I still at least can satisfy that part of me that's like, why are we even doing this? <laughs> yeah, that is a really potent reminder. And I want to um, highlight that in the in our recommendations section as well, because it's a really prominent part of my own experience. So did you, um, thank you, Austin, did you have any sense of um, why it is that the Confederation so frequently recommends meditation? In fact, the Confederation is not very prescriptive or instructive, per se. You know, they have plenty to share in the way of philosophy and and um, reflection and thought and theory, but uh, they intentionally avoid trying to teach method for the most part but among those activities that they they recommend uh, number one is just a general encouragement toward meditation contemplation or prayer do you have any uh, sense of why that may be austin um or has our previous section kind of made that self-evident um i I think there is more to mine here, particularly as like I have a few quotes from Ra that might kind of build upon the theme that we're talking about. Um, and I'll probably steal all of the good ones from Ra so you don't get any to use yourself. <laughs> um, basically, just starting with uh, 
what Ra talked about in terms of the balancing exercises uh, in 5.2, they're offering these exercises in the context of the question, it's for uh, the healing process. But later in the material, they say these processes can be used also for the general uh, development and understanding of the self. And the very first thing that they say here is that we begin with the mental learned teachings necessary for contact with intelligent infinity. The prerequisite of mental work is the ability to retain silence of self at a steady state when required by the self. The mind must be opened like a door. The key is silence. So what I see Ra talking about there is sort of like the next step of spiritual work beyond the sort of practical benefits that I was talking about. Now we want to consciously begin, you know, balancing our emotions. We want to consciously begin attempting to contact intelligent infinity and attempting to find certain spiritual states within ourselves that might uh, yield some form of spiritual evolution, spiritual growth, spiritual understanding. And in order to work with ourselves and to do that sort of work in consciousness, Ross says that uh, we have to be able to retain a state of silence. And I don't think that that is possible unless you practice maintaining silence and meditation. The only way I can imagine being able to actually retain silence of self at a steady state when required by the self is to, you know, just like if you want to play the piano beautifully, uh, anytime when required by the self is to practice playing piano or practice retaining silence. And so that is, I think, the one of the reasons why the Confederation recommends it so much is because it is in that sense, a prerequisite for spiritual work. And there are a couple other places where Ra talks about this uh, in a more general sense. Um, one of them is in 1014. They give a series of other exercises. I think a lot of uh, readers are probably familiar with the quotes of the moment contains love. And Ra recommends, you know, seeking that moment or seeking that love in every moment. And then uh, things like see the creator and other selves, uh, gazing within a mirror and seeing the creator and gaze at the creation about the oneself and see the creator. That's all paraphrased. Um, but then they later, after they give all those exercises, they do say, quote, the foundation or prerequisite of these exercises is a predilection towards what may be called meditation, contemplation, or prayer. With this attitude, these exercises can be processed. Without it, the data will not sink down into the roots of the tree of mind, thus enabling and ennobling the body and touching the spirit. And so they're literally saying there that these very like central spiritual exercises are nearly, this might be an extreme way to interpret it, but nearly useless if we don't meditate, because there's something about the sitting in silence and I think allowing sort of these experiences to exist within the self without the constant pull and distraction of our you know daily round of acti activities as they typically call it allowing it to really seep down the experience to touch something deeper inside of us that it couldn't otherwise if we didn't sit within the silence and you know they've i won't read all of them but they basically touched on this uh, a few more times of how there are like 
spiritual exercises become much less potent and spiritual progress becomes much less potent if the regular exercise of meditation is not adopted. And uh, they never explain specifically why that is the case. They don't go into detail, but my basic theory is what I just said. Like, I think it's impossible for those experiences to touch that deeper part of us if we're onto the next experience and then we're onto the next experience, we're onto the next experience, and we're just getting pulled constantly by those experiences. So that is my uh, best guess as to why the Confederation constantly recommends it. Yeah, that opens up some new avenues for me. It's they uh, Ra also says I don't have the verbatim quote in front of me, but they say they link they indicate that meditation is offers the self one of the and I'm 99% sure I'm right about this word, most efficient means of processing catalyst. And I'm going to connect the dot between, connect the line between that dot and what you had just read and said. And that's that there's a sort of uh, partnership, you might say, between the conscious and the unconscious mind. I mean, there's a dynamic tension, but there's a, a two-way communication. And if it were theoretically possible to, let's, let's say, isolate the conscious mind completely and sever it from the unconscious mind. And in fact, I think due to the undisciplined use of attention and our total identification with thought i think it is the way that many of us humans live in that state of a conscious mind separated from the unconscious uh the conscious mind is without its resources uh the conscious mind alone is lacking so much information so much capacity and ability so it needs to dip into the resources of its unconscious mind for inspiration for guidance uh, for understanding itself um, because most of the self is indeed like the iceberg below the surface of the water hidden from above the water so meditation creates a bridge between the thinking outward-oriented daily awareness or thought-oriented awareness and the deeper strata of the mind, of which there are multiple layers, Ra indicates, that, that move downward from individual to collective. So, Austin, when you read that quote about data sinking into the roots of mind, I that is not abstract or figurative or poetic. I think that is quite, that's true in a literal sense, albeit metaphysically literal sense, though maybe there is some biological corollary or neurological corollary in the brain. I don't know, surely. But the, the data, the experiential data, that is um, the fight you got into with your partner earlier, uh, the anxiety you feel about that job, um, or your crave -filled, craving-filled quest to achieve uh, some relationship or object or so forth. The experience of your life, that data 
needs to have contact with the subconscious. It, it needs to to sink down because the subconscious has its own function to perform in this thing we call the self, the mind, body, spirit complex. Uh, it has it can chew over, so to speak, and digest our experience and distill for us solutions if that's what we're looking for or uh, inspiration it can inform us as to our nature and as to our desired travel of direction and the let's call it like the trap door underneath the conscious mind just create a striking visual it's it's not literally true but that that trap door underneath the conscious mind doesn't open and, and allow the collected swirl of daily experience to sink down in into the roots. You know, I listened to a whole long, awesome podcast about dreaming with uh, Sam Harris that described how the deeper mind processes experiences through through sleep. So it happens then too, but I think it has connection to what I'm attempting to describe. But yeah, I just wanted to riff on that. Thanks for sparking that. Yeah, and just one additional thought to throw on top of your discussion about the subconscious mind and the unconscious mind and the fact that we are veiled in third density. And Ra describes the veil in one sense as being between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And thus, when we meditate, we are sort of utilizing our conscious mind to develop a relationship with the unconscious mind. We're sort of, like you were saying, yeah. building a bridge. And Ra, in some terms, sort of describes this as a courtship. And I think that's an important aspect of it, is that this is, uh, especially with meditation, the way for us to relate to the unconscious mind effectively is gently and slowly and not to sort of um, uh, abuse it and sort of, drag out of it what we want but instead mm -hmm. develop this give and take relationship and sort of this dance with our unconscious mind that i think we develop through meditation and then not only are the deeper aspects of ourselves uh, sort of hidden from our consciousness through in the unconscious mind and those deeper aspects get revealed to ourselves and we become more intimately familiar with the fullness of our being but the actual knowledge and connection with the creator and the creation itself is contained within somehow within that unconscious mind connection because the veil not only made this illusory separation between the conscious and unconscious mind it made us forget about our innate oneness with the creator and so contained mm -hmm. within that unconscious mind is that knowledge of oneness with the creator and so in taking our experiences, allowing them to touch those deeper roots of mind, we allow them to gain that context of oneness and of being an aspect of the creator and being an essential part of, you know, the completeness of our experience, that what we're experiencing is not uh, these separation, seeming separation, the uniqueness, the disconnection of the creator that we seem to experience is actually not and we break that illusion through piercing the veil by meditation yeah 
Yeah, the, the unconscious, if it helps the listener, if there are still listeners, <laughs> to think about it. The, the unconscious isn't um, some uh, septic tank underneath or near one's <laughs> dwelling that just exists isolated with, uh, you know, walls and a floor uh, um, connected only to the dwelling above. The unconscious, like you were just describing, Austin, is connected to the creator and it has the knowledge of its own innate uh, unity with all things. Um, Ra, Ra, uh, what's the word? Um, illustrates this, the configuration or the geography of the mind using a the tree as a metaphor. And they invoke this uh, metaphor quite a few times. And uh, they describe the, the conscious mind as being like the branches of the tree uh, above the ground and the trunk being that faculty we call intuition, which is you know sort of this two-way shuttle that allows, well, one thinks of it mostly in a one-way sense that allows information from the roots of mind, the deeper strata, to move upward, up through the trunk to the conscious mind. And in order to receive that information via the, the intuition, uh, one needs to learn to disengage the gears of the compulsive thinking, the grasping, and the aversion, and to rest in a place of abiding, a place of receptivity. And that is also part of the dance you were describing Austin, between the conscious and the unconscious and this courtship that takes place in the positive sense the the negative orientation and relationship with the unconscious is one of as ra calls it you know conquest and plunder through the conscious exercise of the will the the negative relationship is to reach into that treasure chest and um manipulate and force and take what it needs and wants whereas the positive relationship on the other hand exercises patience over time and respect and seeks instead to listen to enter into a state of receptivity by surrendering the will uh, surrendering by way of developing a very fine tuned stabilized focus so that the self can sit and be present and witness what is arising and falling without participation and without engagement and without, you know, that use of the will that I'm calling craving, that constant get, obtain, avoid, uh, seek, do, effort, effort, effort. Instead, all of that is channeled into simple witnessing and resting and in that place i think one by that act alone one is performing that positively oriented courtship with the unconscious mind that allows that beautiful exquisite partnership and dance to to form uh, whereby the self becomes more informed as the to as to the totality of itself 
And real quickly to complete that metaphor of the tree, underneath the ground, which is um, can be taken to be the veil, are roots that move down deeper and deeper into the soil. And at the uh, topmost layer of the roots is, as Ra describes it, the individual unconscious. Below that, as the root, roots go deeper, there is the collective unconscious or the planetary mind, essentially. Then there is the at, at the next strata down the the mind of the solar system. So the mind of our logos, the same mind that developed the archetypal system. So uh, the archetypes would live here and apply to everybody on the planet, but uniquely accessed and interpreted. And below the logoic mind, our local logoic mind, is the mind of the universe, the cosmic all mind, as it's called. And the, the shuttle of spirit itself moves through these layers to make contact with intelligent infinity, which is, you might call it the deepest substratum, the ground of being, your truest nature, who and what you really are. And it is the the realm, so to speak, of formlessness. There is no object there. There is no quality. There is no thing. There is no separation. Uh, but it is available to this thing that is a mind-body-spirit complex, this this thing that perceives itself in an illusory sense to be separate and the self through this, what Ra calls a shuttle and a channel, which is the spirit complex, reaches intelligent infinity from this place infinity and um, taps it for whatever particular service uh, it may wish to perform or whatever let me say for a union with the creator would, would make more sense. But yeah, meditation is key to linking those bridging and linking and allowing those layers to communicate so that what is experienced at the conscious level, which is, you know, what happens from when we wake to sleep and then in between as well can sink down in and be experienced and processed by the subconscious mind. I think we're going to need to break this up into two parts. <laughs> and i want to say this is um i'm grateful to have this opportunity with you austin and i'm grateful to um, be conducting this podcast it has been a big hurdle to get back to this um a big part of which is connected to just on a practical level bandwidth um, but also just anxiety uh, about sharing my thoughts or our thoughts and feeling like you know, I see so many people speaking about meditation skillfully. Um, and I I really live with a sense of like, what do I have to share? So whether it's a value or, or not to anybody, I can't speak, but I, it, it turns out I do have thoughts and it's exciting to be able to share them. So uh, thank you for this opportunity. Yes, thank you. Um, so depending on the size, we may break this into, I think if we do a, a good point, might be where uh, I talk about the 10-day meditation retreat, just make it some addendum as a separate file or something. But um, did you want to explore anything more about uh, the Confederation's thoughts about meditation or motivation for encouraging us to meditate, Austin? Uh, no, I don't think I have anything further. All right. The, the next question we have posed for ourselves is... Um, Hmm. About the, the limitations of meditation, um, is meditation a 
a sort of cure-all, a panacea. Uh, obviously, we're extolling, rightfully so, I think, the virtues of meditation. But, um, you know, does it have boundaries, limitations? Are we placing too much significance on it? Um, are there any uh, dangers to meditation, et cetera? Do you have any thoughts? Um, I do have two primary thoughts. One of them is I don't really know a whole lot about it from like an expert standpoint, but just reporting an experience I had with a friend who I was very like sort of zealously recommending meditation to, and she had anxiety. Um, she attempted meditating and the result was that the anxious thoughts, the intrusive thoughts that she had increased during meditation. And, uh, you know, me at that time, not knowing much about meditation or how to guide somebody. And still, I wouldn't know how to respond to that and what to recommend to somebody. Um, I didn't know how to, uh, you know, whether to keep encouraging her to meditate or not. And she did say uh, after that happened that her therapist said sometimes that can happen with meditation is that uh, anxiety sort of intrudes on the space of meditation and compounds on itself. So uh, if there are dangers of meditation, I would imagine that is one that if somebody, if you are attempting to meditate and you have sort of this compounding anxiety and it seems to get worse with meditation, I would definitely reconfigure your approach. Uh, you know, I'm not sure any specific advice, but I would definitely listen to, you know, your own feedback mechanisms and not just try to do it for the sake of it as if it were a dogmatic approach to what you should be doing. Um, you know, if you're not finding, if, if you're finding things getting worse, then uh, don't do it just because the Confederation says to do it for sure. Um, the other thought I had regarding the limitations of meditation is kind of just a thought that Ra had on sort of the purpose of meditation and an example of how it is not the entire picture of you know, spiritual growth and spiritual evolution within third density. It's in uh, 15.14. They said, quote, the understanding, experiencing, accepting and merging of self with self and with other self and finally with the creator is the path to the heart of self in each infinitesimal part of yourself resides the one and all of its power therefore we can only encourage these lines of contemplation always stating that the prerequisite of meditation contemplation or prayer as a means of subjectively slash objectively using or combining various understandings to enhance the seeking process. Without such a method of reversing the analytical process, one could not integrate into unity the many understandings gained in such seeking. Um, yeah. That was actually, when I, I read the whole quote, that's not the quote I was thinking I was reading when I started it, but it's still relevant. <laughs> um, especially where they say it's about merging the self with self and with other self. And finally the creator, um, the quote that I intended to read actually comes from. It's yes. But that reversing the analytical process was super relevant. Also. Yes. Re reversing the analytical process is important, but also I think at a certain point, Ra talks about how there's a balance between like the analytical process and um 
how the conscious mind analyzes experiences and then the silence of meditation. So uh, I think that is a limit of meditation is there is still an active process of like relating to our catalyst that we have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, The intention of what I was wanting to read actually comes from 19.13. And it is talking about sort of the role meditation plays in a larger spiritual life uh, where they say, This catalyst then is shared between peoples as an important part of each self's development, as well as the experiences of the self and solitude and the synthesis of all experience through meditation. Hmm. The quickest way to learn is to deal with other selves, which I know that's a huge disappointment. (laughs) It would be great (laughs) if that weren't the case. Uh, They continue, this is a much greater catalyst than dealing with the self. Dealing with the self without other selves is akin to living without what you would call mirrors. Thus, the self cannot see the fruits of its beingness. Thus, each may aid each by reflection. This is also a primary reason for the weakening of the physical vehicle, as you call the physical complex. And that's in relation to why the physical vehicle and our bodies got weaker uh, as we evolved into third density from second density. And so the primary takeaway from that quote for me is that meditation is one aspect of sort of this dual nature of third density and what we're doing here. And that it's not an escape from reality. It's not an escape from others. Uh, It is an essential aspect of us going out into the world, living in society, uh, relating to others in whatever way our circumstances deliver to us, and using that relationship with others and the catalyst that it brings, which, as I'm sure everybody listening can attest to, can be extreme and very disharmonious, uh, and then taking that catalyst into meditation. And it is that sort of interplay between the going out and gathering experience, bringing it back to meditation, and doing that uh, regularly that I think is the overall purpose of third density. And as Ra is indicating, is kind of the very intentional design by our sublogos of how we should be, in one sense, relating to our lives. Yeah, that brought to mind a quote I read from Ken Wilber some time ago about how we need to marry Buddha with Freud. Which <laughs> doesn't mean literally like uh, follow Freud's now antiquated uh, school of thought, but to bring psychology, to bring the gift of the West to the deep and ancient insight of the East, because uh, as as you were describing, Austin, um, you know, meditation can teach you to cultivate that equanimity that I was describing and that that spaciousness um, and that sort of distance from one's thought patterns, but it's not going to necessarily in archaeological fashion mine out that childhood trauma that is still plaguing or tormenting you um, to this day. One still needs to work with the contents of one's mind in, in an engaged fashion. And, and as you were describing, Austin, work with the catalyst generated just by engaging with the world of which there is too too much note to logos and um so 
there's that. <laughs> also, I I had two points for for this question. Um, one is that uh, the stories abound of expert meditators who, you know, the archetypal sort of guru or leader or teacher, um, which is not to put a stain on guruship or leadership in any way uh, those roles are, are needed in our world. Um, just that um, there are stories of those occupying those positions because they tend to accumulate some authority or, or power who are amazing meditators and who can even be measured changing their state um, through the, through the change in, in brain waves and entering into extraordinary, non-ordinary states of consciousness, uh, but who behave very unethically and uh, say whether engaged in uh, sexual abuse or wielding of political power in some unethical uh, way or exercising some kind of dominance, et cetera. Um, so, I, meditation itself can absolutely help to precipitate the cultivation of compassion and the development of a healthy respect for free will of other selves. But there really needs to be in tandem with meditation, a continued, as we were describing, working with one's catalyst and a developing of the heart of actively working on on uh, forgiveness and compassion and love and um, tolerance. It's one can completely miss the boat and use meditation and become more rigid and become even more power hungry and and so forth. And then finally, my other thought about its its limitations and uh, pit downfall pitfall pitfalls is <laughs> uh, there's a quote i love in 52 52.7 ross says there is great danger in the use of the will as the personality becomes stronger for it may be used that is the will even subconsciously in ways reducing the polarity of the entity uh, i think the when when the the separate self which is what all of us believe we are these uh separate individuals whatever our, our theory of unity is experientially we experience ourselves as separate individuals when that separate self is opaque to the eternity within and then when that separate self aka the blockages that constitute this fiction of a separate self come into contact with the power that is available in silence the power of the beyond then the illusory self and its chatterbox mind may um, grasp that power and use it for its own ends when ra says that the will may be used even subconsciously in ways reducing the polarity of the entity in other words if you've got a, a blockage one of your centers is blocking the upward spiraling light of the one creator, the, the cosmic prana, the energy of life itself. Because there's there's something you're unaware of in yourself. It's below the threshold of your, your conscious 
uh, awareness, some unforgiven aspect of yourself, some fragmented or repressed part of yourself, et cetera. That energy still lives within you, unknown to your conscious mind. And if more power becomes available to it through the channels that are opened up inside of meditation, then that those subcon that the subconscious can grab hold of the will and leads you on a path which is contrary to your desired uh, polarity. In other words, instead of working on loving and accepting, you start working on war instead, or separation, or as was describing earlier, the acquisition, say, of power or, you know, separating yourself from others in, in a negative, uh, negative way. And, um, Probably one of the biggest pitfalls is as more a higher voltage flows into the system, thanks to the doors that meditation opens, the self can just um, fall into the trap of thinking it's special, um, which is, you know, the, the stubborn most uh, sin in the classical sense of it, of pride. So, once again, just reiterating the necessity of continuing to work on your catalyst and on your life and on yourself on all levels, meditation just being something that can empower the positive work or uh, can empower the blockages if you're not doing the positive work. And unless you've got anything more, Austin, we've got uh, two more sections to explore. Uh, we can keep moving. Cool. So, Austin, do you have any um, recommendations uh, to, to people who um, may want to meditate or maybe they've been meditating and they uh, like uh, some alternative or some thoughts to consider? along with um, any uh, obstacles or, or challenges you see to performing meditation? Um, just very simple recommendations for starting. Um, I think the buzzword nowadays is mindfulness, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because mindfulness is kind of what I think society is generally calling what I would consider meditation, uh, particularly cultivating mindfulness through meditation. So if you look up, you know, how to start mindfulness meditation, there are tons of good guides out there on the internet, or there's tons of good books. You can even find like uh, stuff in magazines at the grocery store and stuff like that. You'll see mindfulness just on the cover of magazines and stuff. Um, I think that there's a unique inroad for everybody to really find what clicks for them and i think that what worked for me what worked for you what worked for any other person it might not work for somebody else and so i think attempting not giving up on the first thing that you find that doesn't seem like it works for you it's a really important aspect of it uh, one particular piece that I have found very useful um, that I listened to long after I developed and maintained my meditation practice, I've listened to it twice uh, since then, is from The Great Courses. 
which is available through Audible if you have an Audible subscription or available to purchase separately. Um, it's a program called The Great Courses, and there is a particular course called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. Uh, that I've found just the way that he talks about mindfulness and meditation, the specific exercises he gives, and just his general approach to discussing the topic have been incredibly useful for me in sort of keeping my own orientation towards meditation and mindfulness. And then the other recommendation is, um, you know, I might read a quote to sort of support this point, but that, you know, the the best thing is to just set aside a chunk of time and to just sit and try to meditate the best way you know how. And when the time is up, you get up and you go and you don't judge yourself and for whatever happened. You just set the time aside, fulfill the time and do that every day or multiple times a day, whatever program you set yourself to and just do it because uh, as the Confederation and Kuo particularly said time and time again, that it's not important what the experience is in meditation, but it is the intention that you bring to meditation that is the most influential and effective thing in meditation. Um, I'll read a couple quotes to sort of highlight that point. Um, there's one from, this is August 2nd, 1987. Uh, they said, we find there is no greater manner by which a meditation might be enhanced than by persevering with the desire and the intention to meditate with a full and open heart and with a mind which seeks a focus upon the one creator above all else. And though this goal might seldom be realized, yet and nevertheless to desire to achieve the perfect meditation is the greatest gift to the creator is that which we feel is the finest fruit that one might produce with the discipline of meditation. So they are highlighting there that it is the desire to achieve this and not the actual achieving of it, hmm. um, which I think is really important with a lot of what the Confederation says. Um, and then one more sort of along those lines, this is from October 10th, 2004, uh, they said, it is difficult to put into words the value of meditation. Certainly, some entities are expert at achieving a one-pointed focus. The vast majority of entities, however, remain forever, to their own judgment, greatly imperfect and incompetent meditators whose thoughts arise again and again and again. And yet, the value to an entity of the meditative experience is undiminished by the self-perceived imperfection of the technique. We would suggest that, without judgment or expectation, you simply seek the silence and listen for the Creator's footsteps. Wait for the Creator's arms to embrace you. Listen for the sound of the door to your heart opening wide. The gifts of silence cannot be expressed, but the virtue of the attempt to enter the silence is absolute. And so, again, they highlight that the attempt to enter the silence is the virtue, and it is that that is the focus it isn't finding the silence it is the attempt that you bring to meditation and i think like they say most people don't ever achieve some sort of expert level of meditation but the both practical and spiritual benefits and the what they call the virtue is still there 
uh, regardless of that. So keeping all that in mind, I think is probably the biggest uh, mental orientation to bring to meditation and way to approach obstacles or challenges that arise because it's not a natural thing, I think, for anybody to sit in silence uh, for an extended period of time every single day. It's going to be difficult for everybody no matter what, but attempting to do so is really the key. Listen to the creator's footsteps. Mm, I love that. Yeah. That's, of course, Carla's channel. Carla, yeah. Supreme eloquence. Yeah, I think um, one of the the misconceptions and thus challenges of meditation is that people think that they have to create some sort of state, that if they're not uh, having perfect one-pointed focus or perfect silence or they're perfectly at ease, then they're not really meditating. But the, the change in state is a sort of byproduct of the effort. And it's, you know, wonderful, certainly, if it can be experienced. It's been seldom experienced with me. But the point is learning to witness what is uh, present for you. And if that is a distracted mind, and your attention becomes distracted, then you're doing it. You're by witnessing that distracted mind, you are gaining an understanding of how your mind is working. And then by gently uh, kind of waking back up, letting the lights come back on, realizing that uh, I I've been taken away in thought once again, gently returning your breath to your chosen focus, as it happens in Anapana meditation, which is what I do, just uh, the attempt to cultivate a one-pointed focus. By doing that, one is developing their will. Uh, and it will need to happen a million and three times. But uh, the the idea is that the, the more one engages this repetition of um, reclaiming the attention from whatever thought about past or future or sensation or emotion, grabbed hold of the attention and bringing it back to the witnessing present. Um, crap, I forget what that where that thought was going to end. <laughs> Something about the development of of um, the will. Oh yeah, the idea being that the more one does that, then the monkey mind, as it's called. Uh, learns to chill the f out it, it learns to uh to settle down and to stop claiming the attention and the mind and finally i ex actually experienced this for the first time in the meditation retreat i underwent last year the mind learns to quiet down the attention will stabilize and stay in that one place and then the spaciousness begins to develop and oh that's wonderful uh, another tip is not to control the breath. Um, the, the inhale and exhale, I think, tends to be the predominant classic focus of meditation for most people. It is for me. I try to bring my attention to my nose, watching the breath go in and out as my sort of anchor point. But um, it will just 
just um, jack up your process if you're trying to force your breath into some kind of rhythm or pattern. I, th th certainly, there's a whole discipline called pranayama, whereby you can intentionally manipulate your breath to create changes in consciousness. But um, in the type of witness or type of meditation that I'm describing, um, you're just learning to witness your breath as it is. If that's a, a rapid, shallow breathing, or if that's a deep and slow breathing, you're showing up for what is. And uh, I think chances are, if you really take meditation uh, deeper, the breath will automatically change. Um, and th there are many things that can justifiably get in the way of meditation, of course. Uh, number one being our commitments, our schedules, our addictions or distractions but um ultimately i don't think there's anything that is truly an obstacle to meditation because anything can because the witnessing spaciousness can surround anything and uh, anything can become the object of meditation any, anything can be witnessed, I guess, is what I'm saying, so long as the, the lights of, of consciousness are on. Do you have any resources where you uh, recommend it? You've talked about the book, and there was a second resource you, you mentioned. Is there um, any other resource you might recommend, Austin? Um, yeah, just to reiterate those, the one book that I mentioned earlier, it's not specifically about meditation, but it is, I, I recommend this book a lot. I've talked about it on the podcast before. It's called The Willpower Instinct. Um, and it has a long subtitle, but I found it a very useful book to just understand how our mind works and how to cultivate uh, what we call willpower and the ability to sort of concentrate on long-term goals versus short-term distractions. Um, and then the one that I mentioned just a few minutes ago was The Great Courses. It's, you know, an audio course, and it's called um, Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. And uh, those are really the primary resources that I would recommend. I've got a couple. Um, one of which is called, is an app. It's called Insight Timer. And uh, you can get it on Google Play and uh, the the apple store and it's got all the bells and whistles you could want <laughs> and uh literally lots of different bells i use it as a timer for meditation in my own practice and you can set interval bells too so you can go off every five minutes ten minutes whatever you can set different bells for the intervals you can set bells at the start and uh end and it's just this uh gentle way to uh, it gives me an indication because I am a time-bound, schedule, crazy entity. Uh, so it gives me an indication of um, um, 10 minutes has elapsed, 20 minutes. And uh, I usually I aim for 30-minute meditations. Uh, however, I am happy to report that uh, Daniel Shields, who is the web developer for LLResearch.org um, and loves the discipline of meditation himself, is maybe this year? Yeah. Hopefully, well. It's been a work in progress, but this year it may begin to gain momentum. He's going. He's working on a meditation app that will integrate with the website uh, that will feature not only guided meditations, 
but also allow people who are meditating and into the law of one, a means to connect with one another around the world. And uh, Sam Harris makes an app. Have you ever used the Waking Up app, Austin? No, I haven't. I've heard such good things about it. Uh, Sam Harris is definitely not a law of one student, but uh, he's uh, really into meditation and consciousness study. And I get a lot of value out of his uh, intellect and approach. And he created an app called the Waking Up app, which is, uh, I guess, a tutorial and source of guidance and reference and inspiration um, and even instruction for meditation i've heard really good things about it uh fox surprisingly just told me recently that she's getting into it and i really wanted to try it and of course uh books abound about um meditation including one i read partially some years ago called waking up to your life discovering the buddhist path of attention i think it was called by oh, something mcleod dan john uh, Ian, I forget <laughs> his first name, but hopefully the title will be enough if anybody should follow up. So, okay, that wraps up the main portion of our podcast. Uh, if you're interested, we are adding an addendum to this podcast uh, wherein we share our personal experiences in meditation. And for me, that will include um, sharing my experiences and insights at a 10-day silent Buddhist meditation retreat I underwent last year. In that case, we'll close us out. You have been listening to LL Research's The Law of One podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find more from LL Research at www.llresearch.org. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. And a special thank you for to Austin for going through this with me. And if you've got a question for us, send it in, please. If you have feedback about the show, if there's any way that uh, we could improve it, um, please email us at the contact at llresearch.org. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, uh, we love you and uh, we look forward to crossing paths with you in the ethers or in the physical. Take care. <laughs>